The board has approved the sale. Elon Musk bought Twitter at $54.20 a share, totaling more than $40 billion, which explains why he can't afford a better haircut. Musk has promised that his version of Twitter will be a safe haven for free speech, to make the algorithms public, and authenticate all real humans. Thankfully, this means Hillary Clinton will now have to leave the site. The Commerce Department announced this week that the economy did far worse than expected in the first quarter of 2022, shrinking 1.4%. This was the first time the economy has actually shrank since the earliest months of the COVID-19 pandemic. Apparently, the only way you can have job security while Joe Biden is in office is if you're Hunter Biden. And Think Progress, a left-wing forward-thinking website, has announced the end of the world. They corrected Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's comments that we only have 12 years before climate change can be stopped. They say that it's actually not that long, but that we only have 14 months. Oh wait, I'm sorry, they posted that in July of 2019. And that's actually not fake news. This is Luke Taylor, and welcome to a fiery, but mostly peaceful podcast. Welcome to Fake News, a fiery but mostly peaceful podcast where we dismantle the media misinformation that floods our news feeds all week long. The media tries to mislead you literally every day. Each episode of this podcast will leave you more equipped to correctly interpret the news and spot their deception quicker than before. This is Luke Taylor, an austere religious scholar, who will be your host in this roundup of the past week of fake news. Well, it actually happened. Elon Musk has bought Twitter. In my last episode, we were discussing the possibility of this taking place. I almost called that episode Our Lord and Savior, Elon Musk. Uh, but that was coming out Easter weekend, and I just didn't, I thought that might be going a little bit too far for that weekend. So uh, we did talk about it last time, but now it is official. Elon Musk is taking over. And this is a big win for those of us who like freedom of speech, for those of us who like the First Amendment and actually believe in the foundational principles of this country. Um, Elon Musk is going to bring free speech back to social media by making Twitter, which is not my favorite social media platform out there, but he's going to make it officially a free speech haven, a place where people are allowed to say what they actually think. Um, and we're already seeing the effects, uh, even though the, the deal is, it's, you know, it's 40 something billion dollars, the whole deal. But it's going to take a little while to work out all the details and get all the money fluctuated to where it's supposed to go but we are already even though he's not in the offices yet pulling the strings but we are already seeing effects of the the new management policies i guess <laughs> they've twitter has already stopped um punishing people for saying basic truths about you know like transgender uh ideology and stuff like that um we're already seeing an effect on on some of those policies being scaled back uh, Babylon B has still not got their account to, to restart. They're still locked out, but I, I'd say that that's going to be fixed before long too. The algorithms that, you know, there's all this talk about shadow banning and, and right wingers have claimed for years that their content is downgraded, that it doesn't reach people the way that left wing content does the way that left wing, um, celebrities or left wing, um, social media influencers that, they get their message disseminated loud and clear, even to people who don't want it. But people who want to hear from their right-wing friends, from right-wing influencers, all that stuff is downgraded in the algorithms and it's hidden. That, so that was called shadow banning, 
We were told for years that this was all just conspiracy theories. That is not true. <laughs> you know, that Twitter is fair for anybody. And, um, you know, if you're not getting attention on there, it's just because, you know, you're a jerk. People don't like you. But all this stuff was conspiracy theories. That's what we were told. But now that that Elon Musk says, no, we're going to take the algorithm public. We're going to show people exactly in the code what it is that downgrades certain people and lifts up other voices. Well, now that he said that, we're already seeing the algorithms switch. I think the Twitter employees are trying to hide. They're trying to cover up what they've been doing to conservatives for years. And so they're already tweaking those things. They're already trying to cover up what they've been doing for years, like I said. And um, we're seeing an explosive growth among right-wing people on the platform. We're, we're seeing um, p- people on the platform, people like Ben Shapiro. I mean, just anyone who's a right-wing person on Twitter, they're reporting that you know they might get a few dozen, a few hundred new subscribers every day on the platform. But ever since Elon Musk bought the platform and, and the algorithms are already changing, they're getting literally thousands of new followers every single day. In other words, their, their profile, the, the right-wing accounts, they're getting much more attention on the platform than they were before. They're getting explosive growth because, because it's obvious those algorithms are being shifted to where it's more equitable. It's more fair now. Okay, um, And simultaneously, we're seeing something else. We're seeing a lot of prominent left-wing platforms get less attention, like news sources, okay? Like um, Barack Obama, you know, so since Donald Trump's not on Twitter anymore, Barack Obama has the most followers of anybody on Twitter, I believe. But they're reporting that now he is losing thousands upon thousands, like tens of thousands of followers now that he's not going to be on the platform anymore. Now, why is that? Why would someone be losing followers? Well, I mean, this is kind of theory. Elon Musk will hopefully find out the truth once he gets in there, once he's able to look at all this stuff. But the the going theory is that a lot of these left-wing accounts were bots. They were not real people. They were generated accounts just created by Twitter to puff up left-wing numbers, to puff up people like Barack Obama's numbers or or Washington Post's numbers or New York Times' numbers. That they're not all real people. They're not all real accounts. It's just fake accounts that Twitter's put in to try to make those people seem more popular than they actually are. Um, you know, and we'll, we'll just kind of let's let's go through this. Okay, I was just kind of doing this the other night, just kind of flipping through. Let me just kind of do. I'm just going to do an experiment. I'm just going to type in on my phone on Twitter here. Um, let's look at the New York Times. Okay, you go to the New York Times' Twitter feed. It says right at the top. That the New York Times today, I'm recording this on April 29th of 2022. Today, it would tell you that the New York Times has 52.7 million followers. Okay? I don't I don't know what it was before Elon took over, how different it was, if it's gone down at all. But today, they would say, you go to the New York Times Twitter, at the top, 52.7 million followers. Now, I'm just going to scroll down randomly, Okay? Just scrolling away, just scrolling down randomly. A couple hours ago, they post a, they, they, let me see here. They post um, about a town in Georgia. Okay, two hours ago, they posted a story about a town in Georgia. It has 48 retweets on this article. Okay, scroll down a little more. There's uh, columnist Seth Kugel, I guess his new column, five retweets. Okay, 
52.7 million followers. One of their articles they tweeted out four hours ago. In four hours' time, it's got five retweets. Six comments, five retweets, 27 likes. Okay? In four hours, with 52 million followers. Just scrolling down a little bit more. Uh, here's an article about Dolly Parton. How she works 9 to 2 now. 29 retweets. Okay? Seven, seven comments. Less than 100 likes. Six hours ago. With 52 million followers, they're getting retweets that are a few dozen. Sometimes they'll get over 100. Uh, story about Donald Trump being investigated. Put up four hours ago. 13 retweets. Okay? So... 52 million followers, and they get retweets from, you know, a few dozen, a few hundred, not that many. All right? Let's go to Daily Wire. Well, people don't really use Daily Wire. They go to someone like Ben Shapiro, okay? Let's look at Ben Shapiro. Ben Shapiro, he has 4.2 million followers, okay? Ben Shapiro, 4.2 million followers. I'm just going to sc scroll through some of his tweets, okay? Um... Here's something him talking about Jen Psaki, 250, 250 retweets. Something that Ben Shapiro, talking about the new disinformation czar, we'll talk about that story later, okay? Ben Shapiro posted something about that, 181 retweets. A clip of Ben Shapiro speaking at some deal, 56 retweets. Retweeting Thomas Sowell, Thomas Sowell, however you say it, almost 5,000 retweets. Something about sports, 25 retweets. Okay, so... Ben Shapiro, as popular as he is on there, he has a fraction, a fraction, New York Times, 52 million followers, Ben Shapiro, 4 million followers, okay? But whenever you look at how many retweets they're getting, how many likes they're getting, how many comments they're getting, virtually the same amount, virtually the same amount of retweets, whether you're Ben Shapiro or the New York Times, whether you have 50 million followers or 4 million followers. Let's go to something that's a lot less. Let's go to, uh, let's see, Slate, okay? Slate is a, f I would say, far left. Slate is a far left media publication. Left-wingers like it. Basically, no one else does. <laughs> Left-wingers like it, though. Their first story on here posted two hours ago, four retweets. Oh, they have 1.7 million followers. Um, just scrolling through some of their recent posts. Three retweets, zero retweets, eight retweets, zero retweets, zero retweets, 11 retweets, zero retweets. I'm just going through some of their recent things, some of their recent tweets here on the, on the platform, okay? Slate not getting that much attention. For 1.7 million followers, they don't even get five retweets most of the time. Let's go to... Libs of TikTok. Now, that's something popular lately. We'll talk about that in a little bit, too. Libs of TikTok. Okay. This is a, I guess I'd say right wing. I mean, it's not really posting a lot of opinion. It's posting, it's posting, re reposting information that, that Democrats say, things that liberals say. It's called Libs of TikTok. They post a lot of videos that are shared on TikTok. Okay. Libs of TikTok has 1.1 million followers, less than Slate. Okay. Less of a following than Slate, and they've, by the way, half of those have just been in the past few weeks because of how libs of TikTok has been harassed lately. So a few weeks ago, they didn't even have nearly as many as they do now. But anyway, a little bit over a million followers, all right? And you go through, 
some of their retweets. 1,700 retweets, 5,000 retweets, 5,000 retweets, 6,000 retweets, 1,000 retweets, 4,400 retweets. A little bit different from Slate there. They have less followers than Slate. Slate gets four or five retweets an article, four or five retweets a post. Libs of TikTok is getting in the thousands, okay? So all I'm saying is I'm just kind of doing a little experiment here, okay? I'm just kind of going to some random things. And just as we see as we go through that, um, the conservative content on this platform is now getting a lot more attention. Is, is People actually care what conservatives have to say. Whereas if you're the New York Times, it shows just how much people don't care what you have to say. Elon Musk has, has bought this platform now, and he's not a conservative himself. He's being described as one, but he's really not. He'd be considered liberal in a lot of ways. Liberal, but not progressive. Okay, if you want to know a difference in the two, go see episode 23. I'll give you, I give you a breakdown of the difference in liberal versus progressive. In, I think it's episode 23 of the show. It's where I talk about uh, evangelicals for Biden for something about children. Go, go look for that episode if you want to. Elon Musk is not some right-winger, okay? He's left-wing in a lot of his beliefs. Very socially, I think he's libertarian at best. Very socially liberal, like a lot of libertarians are. And yet, he's being described as a far-right conservative because he actually cares about free speech and he wants to create a place where you can say what you really believe and say what you believe is true, no matter who you are. Not just if you're a right-winger, but no matter who you are. He shared a graphic here just lately, though. to just It kind of showed how extreme the left has become. This graphic was originally created by Colin Wright. I want to give him a credit because he hasn't been getting get credit. <laughs> but he posted this, this tweet, this image. And this image shows how... Um, it shows where, like, kind of a scale. And it shows where the right is on the scale, where the left is on the scale, and then where the moderate middle would be. And so it shows how kind of over the years, people who are on the left have just run far, far, far to the left. And what happens is whenever you run to the left, that moderate middle, whatever's considered moderate, gets kind of stretched out to the left as well. So somebody who believed this, the graphic, it's hard to explain, but the graphic kind of shows this. Somebody who was basically in the middle, maybe a little bit liberal before, okay, moderate liberal person, close to the middle of the scale, maybe a little on the liberal side, they could stay in the same place. But as the far left drags that scale out even further and further to the left, what was the middle on the left side becomes the middle on the right side. You might have stayed in the same spot. You believe all the same things you did 10 years ago. But the left has shifted the Overton window so far, they've gone so radically to the left, that what was once a little bit liberal is now a little bit conservative. Okay, what was once, like I kind of said before, when I was in college, to be in favor of free speech for anyone and everyone, that was the liberal position. To defend free speech for even terrible people. The ACLU would defend free speech for Nazis. Why? Well, because they just believed in the principle, even if you don't like what's being said, that you believe in free speech for everybody. But that's no longer a left-wing position. That's now a right-wing position. And it's not, it's really because the far left has gone so far away from what liberalism actually is, they've gone into progressivism. So I go through all that in episode 23. You can go back and listen to that if you want. 
But so Elon Musk basically shared this opinion. I think to kind of say that's where he was, where he said, I would consider myself more liberal. But the, the left wing in America has gone so far out there that his positions that were once moderate liberal are now looking more moderate conservative. It's only because they've shifted where the middle is. They've shifted the middle to the other side of Elon Musk to where now it looks as though he's on the right. Now, hey, as a person who is firmly on the right, I mean, I, w- I like Elon Musk. I wouldn't vote for him for president because a lot of his beliefs are not going to line up with what I believe. I'm a Christian. He's not a Christian. I'm a conservative. He's not a conservative. But the way that the left has shifted the ideology in this country, it's it's kind of pushed him over to our... Well, he hasn't moved. They've dragged where the middle is to beyond him. So now he's lumped in with the right-wingers. And so this that's just where we are right now. So he shared that opinion. That provoked a reaction. It provoked a lot of think pieces. The liberals are like, oh, no, no, no. It's the right. The right who has gone so far right. The left... You know, the left are the ones who are more sensible and and they always want to compare themselves to the left in Canada or in Europe or something like, well, compared to the France, you know, we're all Republicans. We're all on the right compared to France. Well, they they want to go off into all this stuff and say it's the right who's changed. The left is just trying to keep us together, just trying to be sensible. Nate Silver. Now, Nate Silver is a notable Political analyst. He created 538.com. That's a website that's really helpful, especially around election time. He's a he's a good political analyst, but he tweeted something that's just totally wrong. Okay? And this is what he said. He's trying to take the middle of the road approach here. He says, Folks, it's not that hard. The left has moved to the left in the US, and the right has moved to the right. That's what he said. The left has moved to the left, and the right has moved to the right, and that's why we have division. That's just wrong. Okay, Nate Silver is just wrong about that. I know he, he's probably, you know, probably smarter than me, probably, you know, on an intellectual way, knows more about politics than I do. But that is not correct. The right, has, <laughs> I, the right has moved a little bit to the left, and the left has moved into the extreme far left. Okay, the right, the right has gone left, and the left is off in the Andromeda galaxy. All right, this is not where the right has moved a little bit to the right and the left has moved to the left. It's not like that. They both moved to the left, but the le- but the political left in this country is way, way, way out there, and we can prove this. We can demonstrate this so easily, Nate Silver. Just look at when Barack Obama was running for president. When he was running for president, he was in favor of a border wall. Lots of Democrats were back then. Listen, listen to this clip. That you're going to hear Barack Obama, Hillary Clinton, Joe Biden, Chuck Schumer. Listen to what they were saying just a few years back before Trump came around. The bill before us will certainly do some good. It will authorize some badly needed funding for better fences and better security along our borders. Secure our borders with technology, personnel, uh, physical barriers if necessary in some places. I voted for a fence. I voted, like, unlike most Democrats, and some of you won't like it. I voted for 700 miles fence. Let me tell you something, folks. People are driving across that border with tons, tons. Hear me, tons of everything from byproducts from methamphetamine to cocaine to heroin. It's all coming up through corrupt Mexico. Construction of a 630-mile border fence creates a significant barrier to illegal immigration on our southern land border.
I know some would say they're saying fence. Others would say wall. That's just terminology. I mean, they it's, it means all the same thing. They didn't mean they just put up a barbed wire fence that someone can crawl through. They meant an actual barrier, which is what Trump meant by wall. If you look at Trump's wall, it looks more like a fence, to be honest. But he calls it a wall. Anyway, same thing. Back then, here's my point, though. All those Democrats were saying that they wanted the same thing that Trump that Trump did, that Trump was putting up. They were saying they wanted the same thing up until Trump wanted it, too. And then it became racist to want a barrier on the border. They said, oh, no, that's just racist. And and they ran off to the left, not just opposing the border wall. They basically have an open border policy now. Who changed? It wasn't conservatives. It was them. They're the ones who changed. Conservatives are just believing the same thing today that they did. It's funny when they say, oh, the right has gotten so extreme because Trump wanted to build a wall. Oh, it's so extreme far right. They're saying the same stuff that even Democrats were saying 20 years ago. They just haven't changed. And I guess all all that's changed is that Trump was actually doing it. Okay? Trump moves the embassy to, in Jerusalem, uh, Trump moves the Israel embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, recognizing Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. Everyone said it's some far, far extremist position. It's what Bill Clinton said he would do. He just never did it. It's what Barack Obama said he would do. He just never did it. And then I guess the only difference with Trump is he said he would do it and he actually did it. When Barack Obama ran for president, he was against gay marriage. And that was like less than 15 years ago, as we've kind of mentioned. He was against gay marriage less than two decades ago. Really up until 10 years ago, just up until what one decade ago right now, um, as in April, May, whatever, of 2012. That was around the time that he actually decided to come out in favor of gay marriage. Up until a decade ago, we'd never have had a president who was in favor of gay marriage before. Now we've had three. All that was changed in the past 10 years. Okay? Now today, a majority of even Republicans are in favor of gay marriage. Now, not this Republican who's talking right now, but I'm saying most of them, literally most of them are. Donald Trump was waving the rainbow flag. One of the reasons I didn't vote for him in 2016. Barack Obama. He was against gay marriage when he first ran for president. Now even most Republicans are in favor of gay marriage. So, Nate Silver. Has the right ran off to the extreme right? (laughs) No. They've moved to the left. And the left has gone off the rails. They're the ones who've moved extremely to the left. Okay, now, I mean, if you went back five or ten years ago, cutting healthy body parts off of children and doing transgender surgeries on children, I don't know how you could, you you would have had to look pretty far to find even a Democrat who supported that ten years ago. Now, if you're against cutting healthy body parts off of transgender kids, if you're against that, That just makes you a right-winger today. Because that's just the mainline left-wing position. Is that they are now in favor of mutilating healthy children. For transgender equality and all that. So, they are the ones who changed. It is not the Republicans running. I wish they would run into the far right. Okay? I wish they would be more conservative a lot of the time. 
They have not gone off into the extreme. They basically believe a lot of the same stuff they did 20 years ago. I just finished Bill Barr's book. I'll probably talk about it later. Bill Barr, he was attorney general twice. He was attorney general for George H.W. Bush in the early 90s. And then he was attorney general for Donald Trump for a couple years at the end of Trump's presidency. And he said, he talked about this in the book, that when he was voted in uh, through a Senate confirmation process back in the 90s, it was virtually unanimous. All the Republicans, all the Democrats, virtually unanimous voted him voted him in as Attorney General back in the early '90s. He's Attorney General again, and you know, installed in 2019. Early on, the vote was 54 to 45 in the Senate. 54 yeses, 45 noes. Bill Barr says, "I never changed." He says, "I believe all the same things in 2019 that I did in 1991." He says, I didn't change. It was the Democrats who changed. And to bring kind of all this back to what we were discussing at the beginning, the Democrat description or understanding of free speech is not even the same as the historic understanding of free speech. It's not the, it's not what the liberal perspective on free speech is. It's not the converse, conservative perspective on free speech. It's not the constitutional perspective on free speech. No, to modern Democrats, to these modern progressives, to them, the words free speech mean allowing the speech that they like, banning the speech that they dislike. To them, banning speech is free speech. If they ban the speech that they don't like, that is free speech to them. Uh, You know, we've been seeing this a lot with the freakouts ever since Elon Musk bought Twitter. Someone named Warren Okay, at at real t at real two roosters. That's his name. At real two roosters. Okay, so Warren says this is what Warren says about Elon Musk. He's not going to encourage free speech. He's just going to allow people to say whatever they want, which is not at all the same thing. <laughs> got to read that again. I got to read what Warren said one more time. Warren on Twitter, he says he talking about Elon Musk. He's not going to encourage free speech. He's just going to allow people to say whatever they want, which is not at all the same thing. <laughs> Letting people say whatever they want is not free speech to Warren. That's because Warren's a Democrat, okay? That's why he says that. To Democrats, free speech means banning the speech that they don't like. That's what it means to a Democrat, sorry to say. I mean, that's just that's what the world we're living in now. By the way, as far as what Elon Musk is or isn't going to allow, because you see a lot of lies about this now. They're like, oh, is he going to allow child porn on Twitter? You know, is he going to allow rape threats on Twitter? Because he's in favor of free speech? There, we Okay, let me just remind everybody, we have laws in this country that govern free speech. Like the classic can't yell fire in a crowded theater thing, okay? Which I won't even get into all that right now, but... We have laws in this country that govern what kind of speech is allowed, okay? You can't be obscene in public. Uh, You can't... Well, I mean, like, child porn is not protected form of speech, okay? Threatening people, making death threats, making rape threats, those are not protected forms of speech. We have laws that govern free speech, and all Elon Musk is saying is, I'm just going to follow those laws. If you're legally allowed to say it, then you can say it on Twitter. That's That's basically all he's saying. Of course, the, <laughs> if the Democrats had their way, as we're seeing, 
they would ban, they want to literally ban speech that they don't agree with. Not just on Twitter. They want to ban what you and I say as well. Okay, well, that's our first story for the day. That's really the big news of the week. Let's talk about a few other things that have happened lately. So um, I think this is just significant enough to comment on. It's been commented on, and now we're like a week late on this, but... Um, the Washington Post did one of the most evil things I've ever seen a news company do. They doxed uh, the account on Twitter called Libs of TikTok. So as I said before, Libs of TikTok is just an account. All it does is repost stuff that Democrats are saying. Okay. All it does is just shine a light. It just shows, I'd say exposes, but it's not like they're exposing something that was hidden. They're just taking videos of things that, that Democrats say publicly that they post on TikTok, a public platform libs of tiktok just takes those things and reposts them kind of conglomerates them i guess you'd say um it's just a twitter feed that just kind of shares all this stuff in one spot it's useful to people like me who do podcasts you know i I sometimes pull stuff from libs of tiktok i just take some of the stuff that they're sharing and i share it with you so they're they're a real handy source, and they're anyway. That's why the Democrats are going after them. When I say the Democrats, of course, I mean the news media. So, the Washington Post, one of their writers out there, literally, okay, literally, tracked down the anonymous person who runs the Libs of TikTok account, and published her personal information. Is a woman in I forgot where. I'm not even going to say where. I'm not going to say her name. She wants to be a private person. She's not. Like I said, she's not really posting her own opinion. She's just reposting stuff that Democrat, the crazy stuff that Democrats say in public. She's just sharing that, okay? And the Washington Post, she's basically just doing journalism. <laughs> she's just talking about current events. And and the Washington Post got jealous because they were like, oh, is that what journalism is? They got a little bit jealous that they found a random anonymous, an anonymous person on Twitter who does journalism better than they do. So they have decided to dox her. Doxing is whenever you find someone's private information and you share it publicly to to aid angry mobs in harassing and threatening that person. So it's an intimidation tactic. Washington Post published the anonymous Libs of TikTok account holder, published her name, her address, where she works, where she lives. They posted an article exposing her. (laughs) Um, It's just so silly they even wasted time on this. She's just some random person. There was nothing, no offense to her, nothing fascinating or interesting about her. Just an ordinary person. Not really newsworthy. But they published a story about her and they included a link. She's a real estate agent, I guess. They included a link to her real estate profile where it had her address, phone number, name, all that stuff. They published a link to that in their story. And this is one of the most despicably evil things I've ever seen a media company do. So they shared her name. They shared her address, linking to it directly in the story. Then they removed the link when they were criticized for doxing her. They re- they kept the story, but they removed the link. And then they put out this statement. They said, we did not publish or link to any details about her personal life. They put out a statement denying that they had ever linked to her personal details in the first place. When they had literally done just that. They did it. They edited the story. And then they 
publish this flat-out lie saying that they never did what they actually originally did. It's one of the most evil things I've ever seen a media company do. Why did they, why did they do that? I mean, uh, it's, it's evil. It's not accidental. It wasn't a mistake. They did it on purpose. They're lying on purpose now. Why did, they, why did they do it? Well, for one thing, they got her personal information out there. And they might have changed the article, but they know that angry mobs of left-wing agitators, rioters, all those people, they've got her personal information now. They can track her down if they want to. They can go to her house, mob outside her house. Washington Post already went to her relatives' houses, harassing them. It's an intimidation tactic. So they posted that information so that the angry, evil mobs could get a hold of it. Then they hit it. Now that it's already out there, they hit it. But it's already in the hands of the mobs. And it's also an intimidation tactic against you and me. You know, now they're, they're, they want people like you and me to be afraid to speak out and criticize or even shine a light on what the left is doing in this country. See, lives of TikTok would find videos of like... Um, uh, the left-wing teachers talking about how they want to indoctrinate their kids, groom their kids, groom the kids, in, not their own kids, but the kids in their classrooms, okay? Not their own children, other people's children, your children. Left-wing teachers talking about how they want to teach these kids about um, homosexual activity and pan, pansexual, pangender, whatever, all that stuff. They want So Libs of TikTok just shines a light on it. And the Washington Post and the other Democrats, they don't like that. They don't want you, they don't want you to know what they're up to. So they do this doxing thing, not just to try to scare libs, libs of TikTok. They want to scare you. They want to make you afraid to speak up. They want to make you think, oh, if you try to shine a light on what we're doing, we'll, we could dox you next. Just one of the most evil things I've ever seen. So it's been talked about a lot. I know this is old news to you. This was like a week ago. But it's worth... I mean, it's worth mentioning. It's in case you didn't know, I want you to know. And it's just worth noting on this program where we kind of catalog these things that the fake news media is up to. All right. Another story today. The Biden administration has created the Ministry of Truth. <laughs> That's a 1984 joke. So if you read 1984, maybe I don't know if you know what it what it's about. It's about a, a dictatorial authoritarian is the better, better word an authoritarian government. In George Orwell's dystopian novel, 1984, there is a ministry of truth, which is responsible for propaganda, historical revisionism, culture, and entertainment. Of course, as with the other ministries in Oceania, the name is a misnomer, as the ministry's main purpose is misinformation and falsifying historical events so that they agree with Big Brother. It's the place where lies are manufactured. That's just a little description I got offline from what the Ministry of Truth is in 1984. 1984 is set in like a European country. Um, that I, I, it's, I, it's like England or Europe. It's, it's like in the UK, but they call it Oceania in the book. And um, it, over in Europe, their government departments, like in America, we say the, the Department of Defense, Department of Homeland Security. In a lot of European countries, they call them ministries. So... In 1984, they have a ministry of truth, and it's this government organization that tries to control what people believe, what the history books say, all that kind of stuff. And um, the Biden administration this week has created their own government ministry of truth. Okay, It's under the Department of Homeland Security, 
but they've titled it the Disinformation Governance Board. And and I mean, so I I make the 1984 comparison because it's a perfect comparison. Okay. What the stuff that happened in the 1984 book is happening today. The government is creating an organization now, a government department. It's under Homeland Security, but they're creating literally a a board that's now supposed to tell us what we should believe is true and what we should believe is false, what we should disregard as disinformation. And yes, everybody is against disinformation. Nobody is pro-disinformation. I'm against disinformation. That's why I have this podcast. Okay? So everyone's against disinformation, but we've always recognized the basic truth, the basic reality in this country that the government is not supposed to be the one telling us the difference in what's true and false. I'm not saying that they should lie, but I'm saying they should not they should not be considered the arbiters of truth. I mean, that's what we used to have the media for, is they would hold the government accountable. They don't do that anymore. They they do a good job holding Republicans accountable, but they well, you know. I don't need to get into it all again. I mean, that's why we have this podcast. But anyway, the government in in America under the Biden administration, okay? Which, by the way, these Democrats are so short-sighted now. They used to be so good at planning for the future. It's why we're in as bad a shape as we're in, because they were so good at planning for the future. But now, ever since Trump got elected, it's like they never think more than a year or two ahead. They do stuff that's just going to backfire on. Like, do you... Okay, Democrats, let's say Donald Trump runs for president in 2024 and wins, which he could very easily do. I don't want him to, honestly. We'll get into that later, too. I don't want him to, but he could. Do you want to hand him the disinformation governance board when he's president? Why create something? You know the pendulum swings back and forth in this country every few years. Democrats are in charge. Republicans are in charge. You're never going to stay in power forever. Why do they do something like this? Do they want to just hand this over to their their political enemies in a few years? I don't want to do things. I don't want to do things when a Republican is president that's just going to ruin make it harder for us next time Democrats are in power. It's so, it's so short-sighted. I, hopefully, if Trump has any integrity, if any Republican who gets in charge next has any integrity, they'll just disband this whole thing. So the leader that Biden's put in charge of the Disinformation Governance Board, the executive leader is Nina Jinkowitz. Imagine that, you know, with President Trump right now calling all of these news organizations that have uh, inconvenient for him stories that they that they're getting out there that he's calling fake news and now lashing out at platforms. I would never want to see our executive branch have that sort of power. If you just look at her Twitter history, she spread a lot of disinformation herself. She helped discredit the Hunter Biden laptop story that when that was discovered, she said it was Russian. She said it was Russian disinformation when it turned out to be 100% true. She called it disinformation. So now we can see how she's going to run the disinformation board. Back when the Hunter Biden laptop thing came out, she said that it was a fairy tale and that it came from the Russians. Total lie. Whether she knew it was a lie or not, I mean, I thought it was obviously a lie back then. But whether she knew or not, she promoted a lie. Now, either she's a liar or she's just stupid, but either way, she shouldn't be running the, 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 the disinformation governance board. Not that anyone should be running a disinformation governance board. She also promoted the conspiracy theory 
that Donald Trump was a Russian asset, you know, during the early years of the Trump administration, the majority of the Trump administration, to be honest, because that lingered for about three years. Now, you might say, well, everybody was saying that back then. All the Democrats were saying that. Well, in that case, no Democrat should be in charge of telling us what is true and what is not, because obviously they can't tell. And as I've been saying, nobody in government should. So this board should not exist. That Nina Jankowicz said in January of 2021, she said, free speech is achieved through censorship. She said that free speech is achieved through censorship. These modern Democrats, they're just progressive. They're not liberal. They're not constitutional. They have a different view of what free speech even means. And they should be the last people regulating speech in this country with a disinformation governance board. Okay, well, I think we should pause here to hear what's racist for this week. Everything is racist! So this is a real headline uh, coming from Slate, all right? Slate, who we mentioned earlier, one of those far-left influencers. Although, as we saw from their Twitter feed, they're not influencing a whole lot of people. So here's the headline from Slate. My two-year-old doesn't seem to care about being anti-racist. <laughs> this is by Jamila Lemieux. I don't know how to say her name. And she asks, have we screwed up somehow? My husband and I, <laughs> she puts in parentheses, we're white, have a two-year-old daughter and are doing our very best to be anti-racist parents. We're making sure she has lots of multiracial dolls, only consumes books and TV shows with diverse characters, and has no problematic Halloween costumes, and so on. But when we try to discuss issues like structural racism... <laughs> <laughs> it's a two-year-old. <laughs> but when we try to discuss issues like structural racism, intersectionality, or white fragility, she doesn't seem all that interested. <laughs> these, I don't, it's not just because they're Democrats. I don't think that these people are qualified to raise a two-year-old, okay? <laughs> they think that they need to be having talks with her about intersectionality. She often walks away, asks for a cookie, or even falls asleep. Have we screwed up somehow? Has society's disdain for the perspectives of marginalized people already infected her? How do we get her to appreciate the urgency of the conversation around deconstructing white supremacy? This was actually posted in Slate. And I would have loved to keep reading. I mean, I would have loved to, but you have to pay $15 so you have to subscribe to Slate and it's they were like, it's $15 for three months and you can read the stupid stuff like this. So I love you guys, but I don't love you enough to go spend $15 just to find out what was coming next. But that that's what's racist for you. That's here from Slate. All right, so before I close down later, I'll go ahead and mention this here. If you want to get in touch with Fake News, a fiery but mostly peaceful podcast, you can send us an email to fierybutpeaceful at gmail.com. If you see some fake news, go ahead and send it our way. If you get it to us first, I'll give you credit for it. You can stay t- you can stay in touch throughout the week. We're on Twitter at Fake News Weekly, and Twitter is better than ever to join. So um, if you're on Twitter, go ahead and find us there at Fake News Weekly. And um, we, we hit a new high, hit a new high in Twitter subscribers this week. So we're, we're seeing that Elon boost as well over at Fake News Weekly. Go join up with us there. If you like Bible studies or if you just really dig 
the sound of my voice. I have another podcast. It's called Cross References, and it's not really about news or current events. It's what I consider my main podcast, and I do episodes of that generally on Mondays. Um, I don't think I'll have one for this coming Monday, but uh, but go look it up. Cross References on Apple, Spotify, wherever you get this podcast. You can find my other one there as well. Uh, go check that out if you'd like to just keep up with some Bible study stuff and look at the topics that are on there. If any of them interest you, uh, give it a listen, share it. I appreciate that as well. We're going to go into our Beyond the Headline segment here. So I finished Bill Barr's book um, that I talked about it a couple episodes ago. Uh, I Again, I can't say the name of the book because uh, it has a bad word, a minor bad word in the title of the book. But sometimes my, my mother, well, I don't know actually if my mother-in-law listens, but if she does, I know my wife listens. And if I say the bad word that's in the title of the book, she will tell my mother-in-law and then my mother-in-law will get onto me and I would probably deserve it. So I'm not going to tell you the name of the book, but you can go Google it if you want. It's Bill Barr's new autobiography that just released in March. It's about 600 pages. And so I did finish it a couple weeks ago. Um, just thought I'd share some. So our Beyond the Headline today, It's I just want to do a little mini book review. I highly recommend the book if you like politics and stuff like that. Um, there's some skippable chapters in there. Uh, I say skippable. I'll, I'll have some more comments on that in a minute. But I mean... Uh, I, I originally considered skipping the first 150 pages because he was talking about the George H.W. Bush administration up until about page 150. And honestly, I was wanting to read more of the, the Trump administration stuff. I want to get more behind the scenes info on that. So I, I considered skipping it. Then I did read the first 150 pages. I think in, in retrospect now, that was probably my favorite part of the book. That's where I learned the most because I didn't know a lot about the, the H.W. Bush administration. So... I think I discussed that a few episodes back. I kind of talked about that a little bit already. But um, now I have finished the entire book. And, uh, you know, there's some chapters in the middle of the book, kind of like from 300, 400, around there, that it wasn't the most interesting stuff to me. Um, and there, you know, I, here's here's something I would say. As someone who followed the Trump administration pretty closely, um, I didn't learn a whole lot on as far as new information and i don't mean that to disparage the book um the you know this book is so comprehensive and and really helpful at understanding a lot of stuff that happened with the trump administration but what i'm saying is that when i say i didn't learn a whole lot um i just kind of found out that the the things that were going on behind the scenes were the same stuff that you'd see on on trump's twitter feed okay so the the way that trump was behind the scenes is the same person he was in public. There wasn't like some sinister, devious side of Trump that came out when no one was looking, okay? When he was behind closed doors. I mean, Bill Barr shares a lot of information here behind closed doors that, you know, I'm always kind of surprised what they'll share from behind closed doors, but it doesn't shed any light on anything. He's not divulging national secrets. It's not, there's not like some hidden aspect of who Trump is that would shock you for reading this book. And and I mean that for good and for bad, Okay. So it's, you know, it always kind of seems silly to me that the Democrats wanted to call Trump a moron and stupid, but then they also acted like he's this devious mastermind, you know, who's um, pulling all these strings so carefully and playing the 4D chess. Well, that was just something the supporters said. But I mean, he wasn't this like criminal mastermind that the Democrats tried to describe him as, okay? 
he wasn't keeping any secrets. <laughs> Donald Trump was a terrible secret keeper. So there was not like some, you know, hidden thing. He, he was not secretly racist. Okay. Like they're like, well, you know, he says all this stuff about equality in public, but you know, secretly he's this racist guy. You know, I don't, I don't think Trump had a racist bone in his body. He had a lot of bad qualities, but racism was not one of them. That's Democrat imagination. And this whole idea that he's some criminal mastermind that was just in their imagination. And it never squared with their claims that he was a bumbling oaf. It didn't square with reality. Okay. And you just kind of read how Trump acted behind the scenes. It was the same that he was on a stage. Not, not a whole lot of difference. Okay. Um, and so I, you know, just that's one, I guess that's one of my big takeaways from the book for good or for bad. The person that Trump presented him, presented himself to be in public is the same person he was in the Oval Office in this, in a private meeting, same person. So you can do with that what you want. Um, I do recommend the book. I think it's worth, I mean, if you're into politics stuff, if you like hearing how government works, um, I think you learn a lot about how the White House works. It specifically contrasts in how the Trump White House worked in comparison to other White Houses. You get to learn about that in the book. So, I mean, I recommend it if you're into that kind of thing. It's not going to be a book for everybody. But um, I have a lot of respect for Bill Barr. Um, even, you know, so reading reading stuff from his perspective, uh, I mean, I agreed with his perspective on a lot of things already. And I think he has a lot of integrity. And so I have 90% of the things I would agree with him on. Um, you get you do learn a little bit of the legal stuff that he was attorney general and about how the Justice Department specifically is run. And I didn't know a whole lot about some of that. So this was a you know big primer for me on a lot of those things. And, you know, you kind of see how a lot of us enjoyed the Trump tweets. You know, we found a lot of entertainment value in them. But we also would see, as a lot of us knew, that hurt him a lot. Um, it was great for him to get his perspective out. But they were so erratic sometimes and so emotional that they... Uh, they caused him to lose. I mean, they probably had an effect on him losing the second election and caused a lot of people to lose respect for him. And as from the Justice Department side, you'd see how they had a bad effect legally that like Trump could tweet about something that was a pending case that the Justice Department was, was arguing one way or the other on. And Trump's comments that he would make in public could influence how judges or lawyers would would um, argue about these legal matters. So they could have a bad effect. You know, they could say, oh, well, you're not doing this because of the reasons you said you're doing it because Trump said blah, blah, blah. So it, could, it the tweets could have a bad effect on legal things. And, and that was a problem. So now now Trump might be allowed to get his Twitter back. <laughs> and I miss, you know, the entertaining tweets. But on the other hand, it might be better if he doesn't come back to Twitter. So we'll see, I guess we'll kind of follow and see how that goes in the days ahead. Um, but one thing that I'll disagree with Bill Barr about He's a big defender of the FBI. And if you've been listening to my show for a while, you know, I my comment is disband the FBI. But Bill Barr, would he would not say that. He's a big defender. He thinks they do a lot of good. But he says in the book, like, he says this as a defense of the FBI. And I have a big disagreement on this matter. So as, you, as I've been saying, I think the FBI is stirring up and investigating a lot of worthless stuff like about white supremacy, the white white right wing terrorism, white supremacist terrorism, they're investigating all that stuff, 
And yet we have actual like Muslim terrorists or black supremacists or just people like Antifa running around in this country and the FBI is just ignoring them. So Bill Barr, in defending the FBI, he says, well, they need to investigate the right-wingers more because they take a lot more flack if they investigate left-wing causes. Like, he says that as if that's a defense of the FBI. I mean, I believe they take more flack when they investigate the left-wing causes. That's because the left-wingers in this country, (laughs) they want to defend their own side. They'll even defend the Antifas in their own side, the rioters and the terrorists. They don't want the FBI investigating Black Lives Matter. Like as we saw in the Kyle Rittenhouse case, they have apparently they just randomly had video of the whole Kyle Rittenhouse situation going down that they turned over to the courts to try to prosecute Kyle Rittenhouse, which thank goodness they actually had it because I think that helped exonerate Kyle Rittenhouse. But the FBI just happened to have that. They did not just have one video, I guarantee it, (laughs) from one riot. They have tons of video footage of Black Lives Matter rioters from 2020. Why are they not hunting down and arresting those criminals who were doing arson and looting, theft? Why are they not hunting those people down? Why is the only video footage we get from them the Kyle Rittenhouse thing? I guarantee they have a lot more than that. They have thousands of hours of rioters and looters. Why are they not making arrests with that footage? Well, as Bill Barr said it, it's because they take more flack when they investigate left-wing causes. That is why I say disband the FBI. So that would be my one thing where I would say I disagree with Bill Barr. And I still have a lot of respect for the guy. Um, so Bill Barr, you know, he's a legal guy. Like, I, I sat through a legal business meeting a few years ago. Like I've mentioned, I'm a pastor. The the organization that credentials me, they have a, every year, they have a meeting at a town nearby. And so I, I drove out there for a few days and some of it was legal stuff and, you know, just stuff they have to do because they're like a, they're a legal entity that the, this, this organization that credentials pastors, they are a legal entity. So they have to do like these meetings to vote on new leaders and all this kind of passing resolutions. It's really boring. You know, it's not the most interesting thing in the world. Now, I have a friend who's who's a pastor and he's a lawyer and he was sitting right beside me through the meeting. And, you know, as we're sitting there and they're reading off, they had like 11 or 12 resolutions to pass. And most of them were just boring as heck. No, it was more. It was like it was about 14 or 15 resolutions <laughs> You have to listen to all these resolutions being read. And they're just about little little minor minor technical legal details, updating our constitution, bylaws, all that kind of stuff. And I could just take a nap, you know, at 10 in the morning. I was hyped up on coffee, so that kind of kept me going. But I could have slept through it, to be honest. And my lawyer friend who's sitting beside me, he, you know, he's plugged into this. This is his thing because he's a lawyer. He likes this legal stuff. He's a lawyer and a pastor. Here's what I want to say about that. This stuff that we were doing at the ministry organization. It was important. I mean, it was important stuff. It's legal stuff. It's what we have to do to remain of a legal body or whatever. You know, we have to keep up with our constitution and bylaws and all that. But it's boring. And and here's the lesson I would just take away from that. The best things that government does are not usually the things that make it into the headlines. Okay? Some of the most important things 
that were in William Barr's book, they were also the most boring things. Like they weren't that fun to read about. <laughs> you kind of want to read, you, you want to get back into some of this other stuff. I mean, he spends a lot of time talking about how they crack down on on human trafficking and the drug drug trafficking, border security, cracking down on terrorism and law enforcement. I mean, that was Bill Barr's bread and butter. But it's not the most interesting thing in the world to read about. I mean, just frankly, it's not. That it, reading about the election stuff, the COVID-19 stuff, that stuff was a little bit more interesting. I, they, they saved that for the end of the book. Um, a lot of the most probably important and significant things that Bill Barr did, you would never hear about it in a headline. Or you would never read that story if you did read it in a headline. It's not the most interesting stuff. And yet, as far as things the Justice Department did that had the most day-to-day effect on yours and I's lives, you know, it was those things. So it kind of just showed me as I read the book, a lot of the best and most important things that government does they're not things that really snag the headlines. It's stuff that having to do with regulations or getting rid of regulations or 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 putting in new regulations on the border that help stop drugs from coming in, you know, and you and you realize how significant of an effect all those things can have that affects your life and my life, the people we know and love. But we don't really realize it because the the news media doesn't talk about a lot of those things. So um, probably Eric Holder was that attorney general under Obama. And probably the best things that Eric Holder did, I never heard about. Because all I remember from him was the Operation Fast and Furious fiasco or how he got held in contempt of Congress. You know, I, you, those things are catchy in the headlines. They're scandals. But some of the most important things that these politicians do, you'd never hear about or read about. So that, that and that's one thing that you can learn about if you read a book like Bill Barr's autobiography which you can look up the name yourself if, if you're interested. Okay, let's pause here for a message from our president. We're going to seize their yachts, their luxury homes, and other ill-begotten gains of Putin's kleptocracy. Yeah. Kleptocracy. And klep- the guys who are the kleptocracies. <laughs> You know, we kind of joke about um, Joe Biden's mental gaffes. And I actually do. I mean, I wish he was sharper. But one thing that kind of concerns me as we focus a lot of attention on how he's an elderly man and he has these mental uh, mental flubs here and there. I do get concerned about it because I'm afraid that focusing on that stuff, that it takes away from the true reasons that Joe Biden is doing so bad right now. I, like, I'm afraid we're going to learn the wrong lessons from this whenever we focus on how often Biden just kind of loses his train of thought and stuff like that. I'm afraid we're going to learn the wrong lesson. Uh, kind of like The Last Jedi. It's one of the Star Wars movies. It was episode eight in Star Wars. Actually, let's start with episode seven. So episode seven, when that came out in 2015, it was very popular. The main criticism for episode seven is called The Force Awakens. The main criticism was that it copied too much from previous films. Like they started on another desert planet. At the end, they blew up another Death Star type super weapon. And and I would agree that a lot of the elements of the plot, they were too derivative. But also as I was watching it, this is the first movie that Disney made when they bought the Star Wars license. And I understood why 
Disney was making a movie that copied so much from the other older films. They, Disney was trying to show that they understood Star Wars. So they made this to kind of like explain. They wanted to show everybody, put your mind at ease, that they, that they knew what they were doing. And I felt like they really did with that first film. And it was popular, but a lot of people did. You know, the main complaint about it was that it was too derivative. Okay, and that was a fair complaint. But I'm just saying I understood why they made it that way. And unfortunately, Disney took that complaint to heart when that film came out. They learned the wrong lesson, okay? Because everyone said, oh, episode eight, That's now that's just going to be a remake of episode five. So they, they Disney wanted to show that they know they weren't going to do that. So they said, we're going to make episode eight a lot different. They learned the wrong lesson from the success of episode seven. They learned the wrong lesson from that success. And they said, we're going to go not just different for episode eight, we're going to go way off the rails with episode eight. So episode seven ends with taking the lightsaber to Luke Skywalker. And and then, you know, some people complained about that movie. So in episode eight, Luke just tosses the lightsaber over his shoulder. And from there, from the opening scene on, the movie was all about subverting our expectations. Okay, every time you thought something was going to be significant, they would pull the rug out from under you to say, nope, that's not important. Okay, and they, the story was that Luke Skywalker was on this island. You're all like, why is he on the island? Why has he been hanging out there? Well, their reason was that Luke Skywalker, I want to spoil the movies for you, but if you haven't seen them by this point, you probably don't care anyway. <laughs> their story was that Luke Skywalker was a big, fat failure. That was their story for Luke Skywalker. Okay, the guy that they had spent episodes four, five, and six turning into the hero when we finally catch up to him in episode seven and eight, he's just a big fat failure. And then he dies at the end of episode eight. This is their way of defying our expectations. And they didn't just kill him off. They made it look like he died by getting shot up. And then he didn't die. And then they made it look like he died again by getting cut up with a lightsaber. And then he didn't die. And then they turned out he wasn't even there. He was on some other planet. And then he just died because he got tired. Literally, that's like what they did with him. Because they wanted to subvert our expectations. They wanted to keep pulling the rug out from under us. It was all about subverting our expectations. It was not satisfying. And, they, and you can subvert someone's expectations, but you don't do that by doing something worse than what they were expecting. You pull the rug out from under them and then do something better than what they were expecting. Okay, that's how you sub... <laughs> if you're trying to make an entertaining movie... So everyone expects Luke Skywalker has been going around the galaxy having all these adventures... And stopping bad guys and and training new Jedi and all this stuff. They're like, nope, he actually was just a big fat failure. Like that was their way of subverting our expectations. Well, it did subvert our expectations, but nobody wants to watch a movie about that. A movie where not just him, the theme of the whole movie is failure. Everyone fails at everything they try to do in that movie. Now that's... Sure, that's unique. That's different from episode seven. Yeah, you guys sure did. You weren't derivative of other movies. <laughs> but it was not something that people wanted to watch. It's not satisfying. So that movie turned out to be a lot more, more um, controversial. It still is to this day. Like if if someone writes a letter to me complaining about anything on this podcast, it's probably my opinion about The Last Jedi. By the way, that email is fierybutpeaceful at gmail.com. So anyway, Disney, and I knew they were going to do this at the time, 
when episode eight became kind of a controversial, um, the public the public didn't appreciate it very much. Okay, a lot of people disliked it. Disney learned the wrong lesson again, so they came back in with episode nine, and they're like, "Oh, you didn't like it in episode eight whenever we were so different." So now we're going to do episode nine where we copy more of the old stuff than ever. That was not the problem with episode eight. It wasn't that they were different. It's that they made it all about failure. But anyway, (laughs) they learned the wrong lesson from what people didn't like about episode eight. And they said, oh, I guess you don't like it when we're different. So we're going to do another emperor and another redemption story and end on another forest planet and destroy another super weapon and have another celebration scene. We're going to be more derivative than ever before. And they learned all the wrong lessons from what people didn't like about episode eight. So now you have this trilogy of movies that's so wonky. There's no connecting themes. Uh, You get whiplash going from one film to the next. And they basically ruin the Star Wars brand. Uh, Sad to say, they basically ruin the Star Wars brand now that Disney has it. Uh, So here's what I want to say. When something goes wrong, you want to learn from it. But you want to make sure that you learn the right lessons, okay? When something goes wrong, we should try to learn from it. But let's make sure that we learn the right lessons. Let's go back to Joe Biden. He's going to be 80 years old this year. Yes, I do not think we should elect another geriatric candidate to be our president. But we have to remember the economy is not tanking right now. Just because Joe Biden has a brain fart when he's trying to say the word kleptocracy. We are not in the economic recession right now because Kamala Harris goes on bizarre rants about space. We're we're in an economic recession because, as I mentioned earlier, like the Commerce Department, just to remind you, it released its numbers and they aren't good for right now. They said for the first quarter of 2022, we shrank 1.4%. Literally, as I was speaking these words, my phone lit up. U.S. stocks are plunging. The NASDAQ is marking its worst month since October 2008. The S&P notching its worst month since March 2020. Just reading that off my phone as it lit up here as I was talking to you. Lights up with that headline. So our GDP shrank 1.4% in this quarter, and the media is trying to spin it. Which is what they do. If it's going to make the Democrats look bad, they'll try to spin it. They're trying to talk about how this doesn't necessarily mean that we're heading toward a recession. Guys, the economy is shrinking already. We're in the recession. (laughs) That's what it means when our economy is shrinking. It's not that we're heading toward a recession. We are in one. And I hope we realize it's not because Joe Biden is old. It's because his policies are bad. Liberal economic policies hurt the economy. Under Barack Obama, who had a lot of the same policies as Joe Biden. Under Obama, we had the slowest economic recovery since World War II. Now, people don't always realize this because, yes, our economy grew. But it grew extremely slowly. Then Trump became president and all of a sudden, everything changed. Stocks started going up. Economy started booming. Record unemployment. Then coronavirus happened, and that wasn't Biden's fault, and that wasn't Trump's fault, but Biden inherited an economy that we thought had nowhere to go but up. Like, we, when he first got elected, we thought he was actually kind of lucky. 
because he had inherited this bad economy because of the pandemic. Um, but now we thought, well, it has no, now the pandemic can end and the numbers can go back up and it'll look like he did it. Uh, really, all he had to do was take his foot off the neck of America. Like when Barack Obama was president, all he had to take his foot, all he had to do was take his foot off the neck. Instead, we had the lowest recovery since World War II. All Joe Biden had to do was stay out of things. The vaccine was released right as he became president. And instead, he tried to keep the lockdowns going, the masks going, the emergency going as long as possible to, to where we had more deaths with a vaccine under Biden than we did with Trump, who didn't even have a vaccine. And not only that, Biden immediately drove up the gas prices and he's got us back to where our economy is tanking again. But I just want to point out, that's not because Joe Biden is an old man. That's because of his policies. It's the same policies that stifled our economy when Obama was president, the policies that Trump didn't do. It's Biden's agenda that's the problem. It's not that he has an old man brain. So a few years from now, when he's not president anymore, the Democrats are going to act like, oh, it's because we put that you know 80-year-old man into office. They're going to say, well, that we learned our lesson from that. We shouldn't have octogenarian candidates. That's not what the problem was, though. They're going to try to blame it on that. You know, right now they try to defend Biden. But once he's out of the way, they're not going to defend him anymore. They'll admit, oh, yeah, he was a big failure because it, you it, I mean, he already is. They're just denying reality when they won't admit it now. But eventually, when when it's not politically inconvenient for them, they'll admit that he was a big failure. But they're going to want to blame it on his age. OK, they're going to try to blame it on anything but the truth. It's not that his brain is too old. It's that he has a bad agenda. The Democratic Party agenda, the Bernie Sanders agenda, the Elizabeth Warren agenda. Biden knew a decade ago, we played the clip before, he knew a decade ago what would happen if we pulled out of Afghanistan too quickly, okay? He said we'd be living, leaving behind a bunch of military equipment for the terrorists. And then he becomes president, and that is literally exactly what he does. And that wasn't a mistake. He did all that on purpose. Now, why did he want to leave the terrorists a bunch of equipment? I don't have the slightest idea. I'm not going to sit here and try to speculate on that. I don't know. But it was part of a plan. It was not an accident. It was a disaster. But it is one that was done on purpose. The only thing we can blame his brain for is maybe that Russia situation that's going on right now. Like, I actually do think that that has a lot to do with his diminished mental capacity. That's why Putin feels so emboldened to in invade another country. And if we, if you remember back in January, Biden did a press conference where he essentially invited Putin in. He said there'd basically be no consequences for invading. He said that back in January, and that's what started all this Ukraine stuff. Now, Joe Biden has a problem with saying more than he needs to. That could have been because of his brain. Okay, that could have been because of his age. I could, I could, I'd be fine with blaming his, his age on that because I think his age does have a bad effect in some ways. And I agree that we should not elect old people to these important positions. But let's not let that detract from what the real problem with President Joe Biden is. It's his policies that are running our economy into the ground. It's not out of his control. It's doing exactly what he wants it to. Back in May of 2020, Joe Biden said this. He said, I view myself as a transition candidate. My job is to bring the Mayor Pete's of this world 
into this administration. Talking about Pete Buttigieg, who's his transportation guy, who the Democrats would love to have as a president or vice president someday. Well, Joe Biden said back in May of 2020, he said, I view myself as the transition candidate. And that's exactly how he's acted. He's not, he's not going to be around long enough to deal with the effects of his administration. He's, he's preparing us for something else, for someone else. Okay? He's not going to have to deal with the problems he's causing. He's a transitional figure. He wants to hand the baton off to the Pete Butt gigs. But that's not really going to matter in the long run because the problem is not the person who's holding the baton. It's the direction that the baton holder is running. That's the problem. It's not a bad runner. It's a bad team. And whenever we see where that team is taking us as a country, I just hope we learn the right lessons from it. Thanks for listening to Fake News, a fiery but mostly peaceful podcast. This has been Luke Taylor, and uh, if you hear a two-year-old telling you how they're an anti-racist baby, that's just fake news. Fake news.